On today's episode of The London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jarvis Williams about his new book, Redemptive Kingdom Diversity. So we cover all sorts of topics related to that. What is Redemptive Kingdom Diversity? What is race? What is racism? What is ethnicity? How does all this have anything to do with scripture? Why is opposing racism a matter of Christian obedience? And how should that look for typical ordinary Christians in their own local context? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. But we don't want to think of serious as obnoxious or annoying. We want to think of it as uh, full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we've tried to create and help promote an intellectual culture that fosters those sorts of virtues. Uh, because especially, you know, in the online world, podcast world and everything, there's a tendency to be not those things uh, from all of us. So we're trying to intentionally dig our heels in and say, we want to be friendly. We want to be kind. We want to be gentle. We want to do all these things that we find all over the scriptures. We find the meekness of wisdom that is from above, and we want to try to promote that. So even if we don't always do it perfectly, hopefully it's a good model and reminder of what we should be doing as Christians. With that said, Today's guest is Dr. Jarvis Williams. I had him as a professor at Southern Seminary when I was a master's student, so I had the pleasure of learning from him. Uh, one of my, it actually, it was one of my favorite courses, Greek Exegesis of Galatians. I thought it was a tremendous course. I thought, it, master's student, it was one of those courses that this felt like an actual master's class. You know, there's a lot of seminary classes I felt like, okay, this is basically what I did in undergrad. But when I take Dr. Williams' class, I felt like I was actually in a real master's class, being challenged, being forced to think and stretched. So I liked it. I liked Dr. Williams. I think it was awesome. Now, we're going to talk about his new book, uh, Redemptive Kingdom Diversity, which I think has been making the rounds around the the internet sphere. Uh, And I'm really excited about it because I think it's got a lot of fun things. And I I think you try to strike a, a really nice balance so, Dr. Williams, I know probably, I mean, depending on who our listeners are, we've got a, a wide segment of listeners. Some are going to love your book. Some are going to come in skeptical of your book. So I want to try to ask the right questions and to, to understand what you're trying to do with it in a way that honors what you're trying to do and doesn't um, give any false pretenses of, of what's going on. So before we get into all of it, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself, and how is it that you got interested in thinking about this sort of topic? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on your on your show. Good to see both of you guys. Well, just a brief intro, introduction. I'm, um, I've been a Christian for 25 years. I gave my life to Jesus when I was 17 years old, and I have been in teaching ministry since about two full time since about 2008 and I I've been at Southern Seminary roughly around eight years in my eighth year this semester my title there is a associate professor of New Testament interpretation so I'll teach courses on uh, intro to New Testament I'll teach a course on hermeneutics and I teach Greek exegesis of Galatians and of Ephesians and at the doctoral level I'll do a course on uh, the, the New Testament and early Judaism, as well as uh, seminars on on Pauline theology or or Galatians, uh, PhD seminar on Galatians. In terms of my interest, 
Oh yeah, I'm also married. I have a have a son uh, as well. My wife and I've been married for 20 years, and my son is 13 years of age. I'm also a pastor. I want to get that in there. I'm a pastor of my local church. One of the one of the many pastors of my local church. So I have a have a very full full life. In terms of my interest in this in this topic, it, it, it relates to my academic interest. I'm very much interested as a New Testament scholar in my research in Paul's soteriology, his understanding of salvation in its Second Temple Jewish context. And uh, related to that conversation is the question about the Jew-Gentile problem. Uh, Can Gentiles, for example, become part of the people of God as Gentiles? That's one of the questions Paul, I think, is seeking to answer in in much of his ministry, especially when you look at uh, his ministry in Acts and then uh, the issue he deals with in Galatians. And he, he also touches on this in Ephesians, even though he's not writing to the same polemical context as he is in Galatians. So then the practice, as a, as a Christian then, uh, I, I'm also concerned about the impact of Paul's soteriology in his early Jewish context and the Jew-Gentile question on the current conversation related to race and ethnicity and racism and ethnic division. So my interest uh, fundamentally on this topic relates to my interest in Pauline soteriology. But then secondly, I'm, I'm also a, a Christian, and I'm a, I'm a black Christian who lives in a real world. And, and I'm very interested in how my new identity in Christ, my transformed identity in Christ, impacts the way I live in a real world with real people uh, in the church and in society that don't share my ethnic posture. So that's that, those are a couple of the reasons why I'm, I'm sort of thinking through this question. And then also, thirdly, in, in the current climate, I'm also wanting to, to offer in this book a what I think is a is a helpful way forward that grounds the conversation in a biblical theological discussion to give the people of God some biblical and theological language that seeks to live in a transformed way as we love God and love neighbor in in the real world. Well, Dr. Williams, I just want to thank you again for for giving us some time, and uh, I don't know if I'll get a chance to say it at the end, so I I did want to say that I did particularly uh, appreciate Chapter 7 of your book, uh, The People of God and Orthopraxy. I thought that was uh, a really, really good chapter, and I learned a lot of uh, of good stuff. I thought it was a lot of of good thoughts there. But maybe I think the best place uh, for us to begin is is for you to lay out the difference in race or racialization and ethnicity, because I think those are, are uh, categories that we, we need to have in place and have an understanding of, of what you mean by diversity, what you don't mean uh, in this book. So maybe start there with that distinction and those two definitions and, and kind of give us a lay of the land on where we'll be going. Yeah, that's a great question. In in the in the book, as you remember in the introduction, I, I begin by stating my thesis and and stating my method, as well as outlining what the book is and what the book is not. So before I define those categories for you, let me just say up front what the book is. The book is uh, a a biblical theology of the of the people of God. It's not the biblical theology. It is a survey of a biblical theme that I see woven throughout Scripture, namely redemptive kingdom diversity. And in that survey, I'm seeking to outline this thesis that from the foundation of the world, it is it has always been God's design to save some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation in Christ. 
and that in Christ, God has vertically, horizontally, and cosmically restored everything that Adam and Eve lost in the garden. Vertically, he has restored humanity's relationship with God in Christ for those who are justified by faith. Horizontally, he's also restored humanity's relationship with one another by the power of the Spirit in Christ. And then cosmically, God is also in Christ uh, transformed creation. Now, it's an already not yet transformation. It's not fully realized, but the, the, the redemption for which Jesus died to accomplish was also a cosmic redemption so that the destination of those tongues and tribes and peoples and nations for whom Jesus died, their destination is this heavenly city, uh, this new Jerusalem, Revelation 5 talks about in Revelation 20 and 21, of these different uh, ethnicities gathered from all over the world worshiping the Lamb. But the the not yet aspect of that redemption is realized in the here and now by the indwelling, in part realized by the indwelling presence and power of the Spirit. So the people of God who are transformed, redeemed right now by the Spirit, the people of God who are justified by faith in Christ alone, the people of God who are trusting in the penal substitutionary death of Jesus and his victorious resurrection of the dead, in the here and now, we have the Spirit living in us and we are transformed by the Spirit to pursue this beautiful, redemptive unity that God has redeemed for us in Jesus. And we are, we are signposts, emblems of the eschatological redemption that is yet to come so that we love God and love neighbor as evidence that God has already broken in by the indwelling presence and power of the Spirit to bring about this vertical, horizontal, and cosmic redemption. And so then the way I argue that thesis is by a, an analysis of selected texts, hence biblical, and theological reflection of those texts, hence theology, biblical theology, with an eye toward applying that biblical theology to the modern day conversation related to racism, race, and ethnicity, and ethnic division. So then the book is not a book about race. And the book is not a biblical theology in the traditional sense where I'm, I'm arguing for a unified theme in the Bible, but it's a book that discusses the Bible and biblical and, theo and, and theological uh, reflections from biblical texts in the Bible to apply to the conversation about race. It's not a book about the history of race or what is race or these sorts of things. However, now here's your question that I'm trying to answer. In the introduction, I want to make it clear that there are certain categories that I'm working with that we all have inherited, and I wanted to define what those categories are. So when we think about, in our modern conversation, the conversation of race and ethnicity, we often conflate those two words together as though they're the same thing. But uh, in the Bible, of course, the Bible knows of one race, and that's the human race. Adam and Eve were created, um, and, and within Adam and Eve, within the human race, there's not a, uh, a, a racial hierarchy or different kinds of races within the human race. There's one human race, Adam and Eve. And then from Adam and Eve flow a variety of different uh, kinds of people. We can call we use that word ethnicities, different tongues and tribes and peoples and nations. But in our modern context, our modern experience, especially in roughly in the 1600s in the New World and in the colonies, 
This word race was invented for the purpose of constructing a racial hierarchy within the human race in order to establish this, this idea that there were superior groups of people within the human race and there were inferior groups of people within the human race. Now, particularly in the 1600s, you had this uh, idea of race constructed within the context of of dehumanizing enslaved Africans and and you had groups of people who were European and some of whom were who were Protestant who were trying to uh, distinguish themselves within this racial hierarchy from these enslaved Africans and so this concept of race and this this idea of racialization attributing racial features to people uh, rooted in a a in what were perceived biological um, ideas was a was a construction or an invention that you don't find anywhere in the biblical narrative. So that uh, I say in the book that the idea of race as we know it in our American experience is a word that is based on uh, racism because this whole idea that there's superior and inferior groups. So again, slavery is connected to this construct, uh, the the Reconstruction era, Jim Crow, and its act. And its aftermath, whereas the and, and also with race, race is also has within it in, a, in the modern context this this idea of ontological deficiency that within the human race you have uh, in our context especially that whites were created uh, in terms of this in, the invention of race that the idea of that that those who were classified as white were superior than 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 those who were. Who were non-white, and particularly in the in the 1600s, the enslaved African and other indigenous people were perceived as being inferior. But the idea of ethnicity is is not connected to this biological lie, which I like to call it. Like race as a modern construct is a biological fiction. But ethnicity, although there are although ethnicity is also a social construct. Uh, it, it also it's rooted in, in issues related to geography, culture, dialect, language. It's not connected to skin color. You could have people who share the same skin tone but yet have different ethnicities. You know, one example I give in the book is is that if if you have an African American or a Bahamian or a Jamaican who might all three have the same uh, skin tone, they all three share different ethnicities. Uh, and also that's true with those who would be classified as white. You know, we often flatten out uh, identity, don't we? And we make, uh, we, we, we talk about groups of people as though they are monolithically uh, uh, beings in this one group. So that within those who are classified as white, you could have people who are Italian, German, uh, Australian, you know, different ethnicities. Uh, so one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is in the introduction is make sure people understand that that race and ethnicity are two entirely different uh, constructs. But when the Bible talks about tongues and tribes and peoples and nations, that's more like what we mean by ethnicity than it is what we mean when we talk about race. And I know that's a very long answer. I hope I didn't lose your listeners. But this is a complex question. I want to make sure I'm clear in trying to answer the question you're putting forth on the, on the table because it's an important question. No, that was, that was very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, you also have the world's longest footnote in the introduction. On this, so. <laughs> Three pages. Uh, which I actually found it very helpful. So uh, if you're reading it, don't skip the footnote. Uh, that said, so we've got all this in place. And I do want to ask this question before we move forward, just because given the current climate on these sort of topics, 
I think a common question that comes up from people who are, I don't know, either skeptical or worried about the conversation that's going on in a broader scheme. So they, they see the more popular things like Black Lives Matter, uh, the actual organization itself, and not just, you know, that black lives actually matter, but the, the mm. specific organization and other things, and they see problems with it. And so they think, okay, is all of our talk about diversity, mm. all these sort of mm-hmm. things, are these merely just buzzwords that have just are part of the cultural stream that we just decided to jump in and we want to be part of the cool kids club. So I think you've talked about it a little bit, but I'd love it if you address this just because I think a lot of our listeners or people our listeners know have this sort of question in their mind when they think about this topic. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things in the introduction I do is I, I define what I mean by redemptive kingdom diversity and, and what I mean is very different from uh, what's happening in modern conversations. Uh, it, it's not everything. My, my thesis is not about everything goes uh, in terms of the diversity conversation. My thesis is connected to God's vertical, horizontal, and 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 cosmic redemption in Christ. So one of the things I say is, is that by redemptive kingdom diversity, I mean, I'm quoting myself here on page one, God's holistic redemption of the entire creation through Jesus's death for diverse Jews and Gentiles and through his victorious resurrection from the dead with an eye toward the transformation of sinners and the entire creation. Further, redemptive kingdom diversity refers to God's work to crush the seed of the serpent by means of the, of the woman's seed, Jesus Christ, so that all the redeemed people of God would live as transformed and spirit-empowered followers of Christ. The transformed people of God live in a broken world now in both church and in society in anticipation of and as signposts of the redemption accomplished by Jesus, a redemption that we taste in part now, but that will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that God has always intended to restore diverse humanity's vertical relationship with himself, humanity's horizontal relationship with one another, and the entire creation through Jesus, the seed of the woman. So when I talk about redemptive kingdom diversity, my thesis is grounded in in the image of God and in this beautiful uh, vision that God has to redeem some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, different dialects, different skin colors, male and female, different, also different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, uh, different uh, boundaries of, of the world, different geog- geographical contexts to transform them and to transform creation and to make us part of the people of God so that we would love one another in the real world, and so that we would live in a transformed way with an eye toward that future eschatological kingdom that is yet to come. So I think if your if your listeners would would read read my book and 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 follow it from the intro to the conclusion, they'll see that what I'm putting forward is very much uh, forward is very much different from m- m- many things in the current conversation regarding. Diversity. It's not diversity for the sake of diversity. It is redemptive kingdom diversity. And furthermore, one of the features of my book, if you remember, in the conclusion, I make the point that my thesis does not suggest that every church will be multi ethnic in terms of, or should be multi ethnic in terms of skin colors. Uh, But I make the point that redemptive kingdom diversity is something that 
people who who are in monoethnic congregations or monoethnic organizations can experience uh, in Christ because it is a vertical, horizontal, and cosmic redemption that is grounded in God's image and His saving action in Jesus. So that the goal of what I'm putting forward is not to, to get more people of color on websites or in catalogs or those sorts of things. It is to put forth the thesis that talks about God's vision to redeem some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation so that they would be in pursuit of spirit-empowered love for one another. And that love has gospel boundaries that are rooted in God's revelation and in, in, in His Word. Again, that's why it was so crucial for me to outline my argument from Genesis to Revelation to show the reader that I'm trying to put forth as best as I can in my fallenness um, a, a biblical theological argument for, uh, for redemptive kingdom diversity. As you just mentioned, your book, you know, goes from Genesis to Revelation. I wonder if, if, if you wouldn't mind just maybe picking one or two of the sections out of your book and just give the listeners a little bit of taste of, of what they can expect out of um, out of one or two of these chapters. Yeah, well, I'll go to Galatians. I've thought a lot about Galatians the last few years. I, had a, I wrote a commentary on Galatians. I also have a monograph in the Library of New Testament study series on Galatians 3.13. But Galatians is an, is an important text, I think, in this conversation, even though I only spent maybe four pages in the, in the book talking about Galatians, because I'm trying to do a, a biblical theology of the whole canon. But in Galatians, Paul is writing, Paul, a Jewish Christian, writes to these Gentile Christians who are in danger of turning away from his gospel. And, and this is very debated, as you know, Jordan, but I think the, the, the situation of Galatians is this, that uh, you have these, these Jewish teachers who, who identified with Christianity, and they entered into these Galatian churches, Gentile churches, and they were, they were preaching this, what Paul calls another gospel, false gospel. And this false gospel was grounded in uh, the 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 need for these Gentiles to keep certain aspects of the law of Moses, so that the the the, the teachers seem to be saying that Gentiles cannot be part of the people of God by faith in Christ alone as Gentiles. But in addition to faith in Christ, they had to get circumcised, keep certain aspects of the law. So Paul wrote the letter in order to dissuade these Galatians from falling into that false teaching because that false teaching would lead them to the curse, whereas his gospel gives them life. And his gospel, he argues, is centered on Jesus's uh, death and resurrection, on God's saving action in Christ, and, and on the fact that God justifies Jews and Gentiles the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when you get to chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, you have this situation in Antioch where you have these Gentiles who are having table, Gentile Christians having table fellowship with these Jewish Christians. And Peter, the apostle, was there and he's associating with these Gentile Christians until some from James come. And these people from James are likely Jewish Christians who come and they tell Peter something. And, and Peter's afraid because of this circumcision party, which is likely a different group from those from James. And Peter withdrew from table fellowship with these Gentiles. And Paul rebukes Peter in the presence of both Jews, uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians because Peter uh, led Barnabas and other Jewish Christians into hypocrisy. And the hypocrisy is that they were 
that Peter in that moment was playing up his Jewish identity card and minimizing his in Christ Jesus card and, and giving the impression that Gentiles who have faith in Jesus Christ alone, that their faith in Christ alone and God's saving action for them in Christ was not sufficient for these Gentiles uh, to make them part of the people of God and to grant them access to table fellowship with non-Gentile uh, Christians, with Jewish Christians. And so Paul rebukes Peter and he says this, he says this very powerful word to Peter uh, in chapter 2. He says that he saw in chapter 2 that Peter was not walking in a straightforward manner in the truth of the gospel in chapter 2, verse 14. So that's a very important statement there. Because Peter's hypocritical behavior as a Jewish Christian to, to withdraw from associating with Gentile Christians, Paul identifies that behavior as walking contrary to the gospel. Now, this is important because in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul says that God revealed his son in him, that he would announce his son, Jesus, as the good news amongst the Gentiles. So Jesus is the good news for Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says Peter is walking away from that good news by withdrawing from accepting Gentile Christians as Gentiles who've been justified by faith as the people of God. And then Paul goes on and gives him a lecture in that section in 2, 16 to 21 on justification by faith. He makes the point that Jews and Gentiles are just the, the great equalizer between Jews and Gentiles is that we're all justified the same way by faith in Jesus Christ because of God's saving action in Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, he makes this point, that Jesus died, 3.13, to redeem us from the curse of the law, 3.14, so that we would receive the Spirit. 5.13 and 14 of Galatians, he says we should love one another and, and fulfill the law of Christ. 5.16, he says, walk in the Spirit. In 5.21, he says, a, or 22, a fruit of the Spirit is love. But, but lust of, or, or, or the lust of the flesh are enmities and factions and divisions and dissension and so on and so forth. In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says that if we bear the burdens of one another, we fulfill the law of Christ. So, so here's my point in, in taking you down that path. That if you put it all together, Paul seems to be making the argument that God's saving action in Jesus Christ, the fact that God offered Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to absorb the wrath of God for our sins, and he raised him from the dead, and that he delivers us from the present evil age, 1-4, through Christ, and he gives us by the, the Holy Spirit by faith, 3-14 and 4-5 and 6, by faith in Christ, and he transforms us by the Spirit and empowers us by the Spirit to love one another. That is, these different ethnicities, Jews and Gentiles, in our context, we could say, other ethnicities that are uh, specific kinds of ethnicities within Gentile identity, uh, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. You know, you pick an ethnicity that in Christ Jesus, God has worked to Redeem us in such a way where he, yes, forgives us of our sins, absolutely. Saves us from his wrath, absolutely. Gives us a new heavens and a new earth, absolutely. But he gives us the transforming power of the Spirit so that we can live in Spirit-empowered love for one another and for our neighbors who might not even be Christians in this real world as the people of God. And so if you... If you 
you know, read my book, I'm, I'm trying to to demonstrate uh, evidence like this that shows us how it's always been God's vision to redeem a, an ethnically diverse people, to make them part of the people of God, to live in a transformed way as bright lights in a dark world as we're heading toward that heavenly city uh, on the last day. I think that's a very helpful sketch in Galatians. One question I have about Galatians in particular is I'm just imagining a, a, a imaginary interlocutor who's going to say, well, doesn't Galatians 3.28 obliterate all diversity? So why do we even care about diversity? Why do we care about ethnicity? Anything like that? Why don't we just be completely colorblind and pretend everybody's the same? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I think it's curious that most of the people who say that want to have a very strong distinction between male and female. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, I don't think they're very consistent in that claim. But just maybe... I know you've talked about this before, at least in stuff that I've watched, thinking through that sort of issue. Why is it important to maintain these things of diversity, even in our unity in Christ? Mm, that's a good. That's a good question. Yeah, in New Testament, in New Testament scholarship, you know, one of the conversations related to this question is: is is ethnicity in Christ? Is it eradicated, obliterated? Or is it transformed? And there are various New Testament scholars who end up on a different side of that conversation. I think one of the things that that Paul is emphasizing prior to Galatians 3.28 is the fact that, that in Christ Jesus, there is a new identity that we have that is transcendent. And, and that in Christ Jesus, my in Christ identity is the defining identity that I have so that I live out these other identities that I experience as a Christian. And 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 my Christian identity needs to shape and impact and, and guide how I view the world and how I interact and operate with people in a real world. But when you get but by the time you get to Galatians 3:28, however, I don't think it's exegetically uh, plausible to conclude that 3:28 means that there is an erratic is, that there is an eradication or an erasure of, of ethnic identity. When Paul has spent so much time making the argument that Jews are Jews and Gentiles are Gentiles, but in Christ they are one. In fact, if you go back, for example, to chapter two, verse fourteen, Paul says this to Peter. He says, uh, I'm paraphrasing in, in 2.14, but he says, he says, Peter, you are, although you are a Jew, you are a Jew, Peter. Now, Peter's a, wait a second, Peter's a Christian. Well, yes, he is. He's a, he's a Jewish Christian. He says, Peter, you are a Jew, but you're living like a Gentile. So those are clear ethnic categories Paul puts forward. And he says, Peter, you are Jewish, but you're not living like a Jew, by which I think he means you're not keeping the law. Uh, and, and you're not living in a Jewish way. So then why are you compelling, notice verse 14, why are you compelling these Gentiles to be like Jews? So it's striking to me, isn't it, that as much as people want to claim that Galatians 3.28 means an erasure of ethnic ethnic identity, Paul highlights ethnic identity in chapter 2.14 in order to highlight the unity that Jews and Gentiles have in Jesus Christ. So that when you get to chapter 3, verse 28, I think Paul's point is, there is, there is, when he says there's neither Jew, verse 28, nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male and female, for you're all one in Christ. I think his emphasis is, is on that last part. You're all one in Christ. 
So that the point is not that in Christ Jesus, in the first century church, slavery stopped because it didn't. The point is not that that there was no more slave and free in Christ. There was there were slave slaves in Christ, and there were free people in Christ. In fact, Paul, as you know, in Ephesians 5, gives instructions for slaves and masters. Um, but the point that Paul is making, I think, in 328 is, is that in Christ Jesus, our uh, ethnic identity is transformed so that, here's his point, I think, that what, what grants us the blessing of Abraham, what grants us access in the family of God is faith in Jesus Christ alone, not our not our ethnic our ethnic identity, not our not not our social status in society, but but who we are in Christ. Now, a tricky piece to this conversation, though, is I, I admit if you go back to chapter one, Paul makes this statement about his former manner of life in Judaism, where he, where it seems to be saying where he seems to be implying that he's no longer a Jew in Christ. But I don't think that's what he's saying, actually. I think in chapter 1, he connects his former manner of life in Judaism to this violent zeal that he had as a persecutor of the church. And, and before he became a Christian, he was a, a Jewish persecutor of the church who was devoted to a strict uh, pattern of life and a certain kind of Judaism. But in Christ Jesus, he is still a Jew, but he's no longer a, a Jewish persecutor of the church. He is, in my view, he is a Jewish Christian. Uh, he's not he's not devoted. He's devoted now to Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, and he's preaching Christ as the Messiah. And further in Romans chapter eleven, verses one and two, he says it very clearly that I, I'm a Jew. I'm from the tribe of uh, of Benjamin. I'm from the uh, I'm, I'm an Israelite. So then, what I would say in response to those who want to who who want to make the appeal to this idea of pretending that there's not ethnic difference is that, number one, ethnic difference is highlighted in the Bible, that Jesus redeems some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And the, the one of the powerful things about the gospel is, is that he takes these diverse ethnicities and he transforms us in Christ and he makes us into one. I think that's Galatians 3.28, that's Ephesians 2 and 3. But I would also say this to folks who, who make this point. I, I agree that we should not judge people based on the color of their skin. We should not dehumanize or prioritize people in, a, in an unfair way based on the color of their, of their skin. We should, we should always evaluate people based on the content uh, of their character. I, I agree with that. But I would also say that if we pretend that there is no ethnic difference, we could be tempted to turn a blind eye to uh, various forms of injustices that happen and that have happened in our history precisely because of, of the color of people's skins. And, and those injustices aren't just limited to those who are black. There are injustices that have been committed against whites and, 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 and browns and Asians because of the color of their skin. So, so one thing I want to emphasize is, number one, certainly in Christ Jesus, our ethnicity is transformed. It's not eradicated. In Christ Jesus, the transcendent, most important identity that I have is my identity in Christ as a Christ follower. And I have to I have to live 
in a real world as a Christ follower who is also a black man in a real world, right, uh, with real uh, beauty and with real problems in our society. But then, but then another point I think to consider is is the fact that that we want to make sure we're not naive to the real realities that exist because of the universal power of sin. And the power of the gospel is, is that it breaks in to this uh, multi-ethnic complexity and it unifies a people in Jesus Christ in spite of their ethnic differences and empowers them to live in a spirit of love for one another. That would be my response. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think that's a nice transition to uh, a couple of questions I want to ask about the the final chapter in the book on orthopraxy, and I'll I'll tell the listeners I think this chapter by itself is worth the price of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought you did a fantastic job navigating a lot of these complex, difficult issues and providing gospel saturated sort of answers. So I I thought it was great, um, and you know. Honestly, I think when I come into a lot of these conversations o- over the years, I've become more cynical when people want to talk about these sort of things because it seems like it ends up you fall on one extreme or the other mm. where I feel like it's going to be all the same answers um, depending on what side of the aisle you're on when mm-hmm. it comes to this. But I thought you navigated these things mm. really, really well in a really generous way. So a couple of things, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast episode just talking, I think, this chapter. But you talk about how opposing racism is a matter of Christian obedience. Mm. So what do you think it looks like as a Christian to oppose racism in our current cultural climate? Because I think just as a general statement, I think even people who want to say this whole conversation is a waste of time would say, yes, I oppose racism. And I and I I would fight racism, whatever that looks like for them. So mm. help me to give a little bit of color onto what you mean and what you envision that might look like for us as Christians. Yeah, that's a great question. And I I, I tried and, and and thank you so much for your kind comments about about the conclusion as well. Um, in the conclusion, I I tried uh, hard. Uh, not to come across as though there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that question for every context. So I think I think what that looks like will be different from context to context. Uh, I, I just sort of use my context as maybe an example for what it looks like for us. So 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 for me, I think w- one way uh, practically that I seek to live out redemptive kingdom diversity and oppose racism is I intentionally try to pursue love of neighbor in ways that are practical, regardless of what that those neighbors look like, whether they're black or white or, or brown or Asian, seek to show a basic, kind, Christian love. Uh, that might mean... Um, you know, taking meals to people who are who are hurting and broken. Uh, obviously, sharing the gospel is an act of Christian love. That that would mean um, making sure that I don't make evaluations of of individual people based on the behavior of some within that group. Uh, and I I seek to intentionally incorporate as much as I can and as much as my context allows me people into my life and into my into my space and into my home that. Uh, don't do, do not share my particular ethnic posture. I think that's that's one example. I think we can all agree that's a good 
practical sort of place to start. But I think it's much more complex too, though, than than just that. So I think like in my context uh, here in, here in Louisville, we, we my church is is located in a in a context where. Uh, there, there, there is a, there are some, there are some under-resourced communities in my, in my church context. And uh, there, there's a whole history attached to that, uh, to that reality that affected people economically and so on and so forth. So one of the things my congregation does is that we seek to uh, partner with people in our city who can help provide certain resources to the beautiful image bearers in our city, regardless of the color of their skin, black, white, Asian, but provide resources like uh, free medical clinics that uh, allow people to get some basic things that they need because of uh, their, their their lack of uh, health care because of because of uh, a variety of, of reasons. Or uh, we do things like provide uh, you know, tutoring for kids in our community that are in underserviced neighborhoods. Uh, that have that don't have uh, as much ex- access to um, the kind of education that, that my son has access to uh, because he's in a very different situation. Uh, th- those are those are a few things I think. I think an, another thing is again I'm speaking at the personal level because I think it starts with personal responsibility and personal agency. I, I think making sure we avoid uh, racist speech, uh, racist behavior, making sure we avoid. Uh, that that we do not tolerate or accept as part of our vocabulary, uh, the the kind of uh, language uh, about about groups of people or, or individual from groups of people that is dehumanizing and disparaging. I think we can, I think we underestimate the impact of our words when we talk about uh, the so called other. Uh, so I think being 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 on guard against racist speech and helping people lovingly lovingly helping people that we do life with understand that uh, it is everybody is perfectly uh, open to be everyone should everyone could potentially be criticized and critiqued for their for their patterns of life but when we but when we begin to classify all groups of everybody in a group as this or that because of their association with the group I, i think we 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 basically perpetuate racist ideas, and so making sure we're careful in how we offer analyses and criticisms of 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 people, so that we don't seem to be caricaturing an entire group of people based on be, the behavior of some within that group. And I think that goes uh, across the ethnicities. I'm not just talking about uh, one ethnicity. I'm talking about everybody should be careful in how we articulate criticisms of individuals within groups of people. So I think that would would be would be an example. I think I think also, you know, one thing we can do is is steward our resources in ways that could 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 be uh, helpful to build up uh, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. I think uh, for example, one of the things I I say in the book is is that redemptive kingdom diversity is is for Every person who names the name of Jesus, not just for folks who are in multi-ethnic churches, uh, but for those of us who are in multi-ethnic churches, we have multi-ethnic problems, and we and we have uh, some opportunities uh, that are right in front of us to try to lean into making sure we're opposing racism and ethnic division in our congregation because we have people in our midst who are not the same as us. But for those who are in mono-ethnic contexts, it could be a little bit more challenging to to have a, a 
opportunities, let's say, to, to be able to live this out. So, so one thing they might need to do is think of ways that perhaps how can they bless or partner with communities uh, of which they're not part uh, as, a, as a congregation or individually in, in, their, in their city. That can mean, you know, again, praying. That can mean words of encouragement. That can mean uh, a financial contribution to a ministry that they can support or help. You know, there are a variety of ways that we can uh, push against the, the evil of racism, uh, but it just it requires us to take to be creative, to take our social location seriously. You know, recognize what our social location is, and and to use and, and our capacity. What what capacity do we have to be able to 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 help live redemptively? I, I think one thing we we don't want to do is fall into this pattern of thinking that there's a one size fits all. So, um, uh, pattern of what this looks like for everybody, and that those who don't fit into that one size fits all pattern aren't faithful to uh, to living in a way that is is pushing against racism. So that's one of the things I'm again saying in my book is I'm trying to put forth this redemptive vision that allows for the people of God to ground their efforts in the image of God, ground them in the uh, vertical, horizontal, and redemption in Christ, and to ask realistic questions about what can they do individually and how can their churches corporately lean into this redemptive vision in a way that is realistic and that can build the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's good. I, I think the critiques that I see a lot of times are, hey, you, you've got a one-size-fits-all paradigm, but you, you clearly walk through and say, you know and the way, even your examples, these extremely local, realistic opportunities to, to serve people and to help, I think is the way forward. So I love it. Mm. Uh, one question I, I'd, I'd like to pick your brain on a little bit is how you imagine your proposal integrates, complements, differs from somebody like George Yancey's Beyond Racial Gridlock. Mm. Uh, what, what are the, the key connections between his program? Yeah, George... Uh, you're talking about George Yancey, who's at Baylor, right? Uh, Beyond racial gridlock. Yeah, yeah, yep, that's right. Yeah, George is a is a uh, very careful thinker as it relates to this conversation. And George, as you know, he endorsed my book. I was so thankful that he he endorsed my book. And George uh, is a social scientist, a Christian sociologist who uh, he engages the biblical text and, and biblical material. But he, I think, he, his work largely gives you sociological data that uh, that com- comes alongside of what the Bible outlines and says, you know, the data actually supports that the, the, the ways in which people tend to go about this, uh, they don't they don't work. Right. This uh, the racial gridlock paradigm, it, it doesn't work. So his proposal, I think, is this proposal of uh, mutual responsibility collaborative conversations. Uh, we all know what divides us. We all know that, that race and racism di- divide us. And George focuses on, you know, how can we uh, partner together and focus on focus focus on what can unite us so that we can actually see real world results in the real world and and find some common ground so that we can go forward as opposed to constantly being in this this place of gridlock. So I think I think how how my work and George's work uh, complement one another. 
I think I'm a I'm a New Testament scholar who's who's trying to ground my conversation in 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 exegesis and theological reflection. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm aware. I'm trying to be aware of 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 what some of the th- things are being communicated by social scientists like George, and and I want to think carefully about what race is and these sorts of things, but. But I'm not a social. I, I am not a social scientist. I'm a New Testament scholar, whereas George, on the other hand, is a, is a Christian sociologist who very much cares about what the gospel says and what the Bible says about these things. But he's trained as a sociologist, and so I think although we have different methods and different um, uh, training, I think we're 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 both trying to say there's a better way forward, and that way forward is together as the people of God in in all of our uh, beautiful ethnic diversity uh, and and with commitments to our to our conscience and commitments to the word of God commitments to the the centrality of the gospel uh, we want to hold our theological convictions closely but but we have to come to the to a place where we recognize the the way that we've been traveling, for years now, especially I think most recently, that that's not really getting us anywhere. We're 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 so divided, and so I think George is offering this sociological analysis that says, "Hey, the analysis supports we've got to move beyond racial gridlock, uh, and 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 do collaborative conversations and focus on mutual responsibility, mutual accountability." What I'm saying is, here's a biblical and theological vision that is redemptive, that. Uh, that should chart our course forward. And then in my conclusion, I'm saying uh, with George, one thing I'm saying is we need, the people of God need to work together to see real change in the real world. Um, So because the question, I think, even though my book, most of it is biblical theology, I have a very important question I'm I'm trying to answer. And the question is, so what? Yeah. Like, how does this impact the lives of real people so that image bearers, many image bearers, ethnically diverse image bearers can flourish in a real world? And and George's work has helped me to think especially about that collaborative conversations piece, listening at the same mm-hmm. table as opposed to pointing the finger at each other and yeah. shouting at each other. Let's listen to one another and figure out in Christ, in the power of the Spirit, as image bearers, how can we go forward in a way that is redemptive? So a question that's come to my mind as we've been just talking here, and we've talked about the division that currently exists, um, deep division, I feel like. Do you think, just personally, the that we need to find a new create a new language almost for how we talk about these topics mm-hmm. because it almost seems like a lot of the time when it depending on which side of this topic you're on there are certain buzzwords that are the bad guy words mm-hmm. you know you can think of critical race theory or or whiteness or whatever the the terminology may be do you think we should continue to use certain words that could be misconstrued and just labor to be careful about how we define them? Or is it, is it kind of a dumpster fire and we just need to create new words so we can actually be understood? Because a lot of times it seems like 
we can't even talk mm-hmm. because we have completely different definitions of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, man, that is such a very good question. You know, I've thought about that question a lot. I've had a conversation with with some people about that very, very fact. And and I, I do think that that there are words in this conversation that are thrown out there without being clearly defined. And and the words are very fluid. And then there, there are certain words that are picked up on and they're politicized and they're used as, and they're weaponized uh, from from all sides of this conversation. And I think one of the things I care uh, about, I'm 43 years old now, and the older I get, the more I realize is, the more I realize, I I actually want to see people's lives changed. And that's what's most important to me. And and that requires folks to recognize that we have to to speak the truth. Yes, we have to talk about uh, our historical realities, but we also have to recognize that one of the challenges that we have in the conversation is language. And and we need to speak in a way and articulate things in a way that can bring people together without without retreating from the truth, if that if that makes sense. So what I have put forward, I think, you know, redemptive kingdom diversity, like I know there are people out there who won't like that phrase, but, <laughs> but I think that is a phrase that Christians should be able to get around and say, you know what? I might not agree with all the nuance in the book. I might not even agree with some of the some of the uh, suggestions for for method in the book. But I want to live redemptively as a Christian in a in an ethically diverse kingdom, and and so I carefully selected my title with some help of of, of people who were looking at the manuscript. To to set my, to to show how what I'm trying to put forward is a redemptive kingdom vision, and to serve as an opportunity to invite people into that discussion, without making them feel anxious before they even crack open the book. Because again, one of the problems I think in the current conversation is there's not a lot of talk about redemption. Yeah, yeah. It, there there there's a lot of talk about uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of real pain, absolutely, and and real hurt. And people are are hurting from many different ethnic postures. And there's a whole historical narrative of pain that people are bringing to bear. And and in some of the conversation, you have, uh, I'm not hearing from people on the left or on the right, any talk about redemption in the conversation. So I think, so, so, I think you're onto something that we have to, to, to acknowledge that these are historical categories that exist and define what those categories are. But I think the the vision that that can be helpful going forward for Christians is to start the conversation with the expectation and understanding that redemption is possible, and and redemptive kingdom diversity. I think is a phrase, and I'm hopeful will become part of folks' natural vocabulary. And I think that's much more inviting and much more uh, helpful than some of the other uh, languages being used. But then when you get into the story of redemptive kingdom diversity, you see that we have to talk about race, right? We have to talk about these historical realities. 
But we must talk about the redemptive nature of what God has done for us in Jesus to break into our historical reality and to transform us holistically so that we can live redemptively. So so I'm putting forward redemptive kingdom adversity as a phrase that I think that's helpful. Yeah, that's a good word. I, I appreciate that. And I think I concur with the lack of redemption sort of language. And I, so I, I'm fully on board with making that our primary banner around this conversation. I think that's great. So for everybody who's been listening so far, I'm going to make sure to link to Dr. Williams' book in the show notes. So you can just click it. It'll take you right there and you can purchase it because it's affordable. It's with Baker Academic. You can get a copy. You can read it. I feel like it's written at a level and the length of it is written at a level that if you're a local church and you want to find a book to talk about this sort of thing, it's it's an ideal book. Mm-hmm. So I don't, if no one has ever read any sort of thing of theology or something like that, it might be, you know, a, a challenge. But I think most church members can handle this. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it would be an ideal book for those sort of things if you have elders or or deacons who want to think about this topic as well, I think it's it's at a level that you would really enjoy it, appreciate it, and it's thought-provoking as well. So I, I commend you to find the resource to get it. Um, you can buy a bunch because it's cheap. I know we've got a lot of guys who come on the podcast or girls and they publish with Oxford University Press some book and it's like 150 bucks. This is not that book. So you can actually buy like 15 for that same price of one. So uh, that's a nice deal for it. So Dr. Williams, I, number one, thank you for coming on, talking with us about this. I think it's been a great conversation. Uh, number two, as always, you've got other resources as well. So I want to tell people you can go check out his faculty page. You can find, you do a bunch of New Testament exegesis like Galatians, which I found extremely beneficial and fruitful in my own life. So I want to commend those to you as well. And obviously, if you're looking for an MDF, MDF program or something, you know, I, I'm a Southern grad, so I, I can't but be a homer and tell you to go go to Southern and study with Dr. Williams and other, other greats. So thanks. And everybody who's been listening, uh, thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.